Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 141, November 27th to December 3rd, 1863. Last week, we had the battle around Chattanooga. This included Orchard Knob, Lookout Mountain, and Missionary Ridge, happening all in successive days. Grant has now broken one siege, securing Chattanooga for the Union. We also had the Mine Run campaign happening in a scenario where, if Meade wished to continue an independent command, he really needs a W. Without that, he will have to sit in winter quarters and wait for Grant, who has seen success after success, propelling him eventually to be Meade's superior. But we will get there soon enough. First, we need to conclude things in Tennessee and northern Georgia. Of course, before we do that, we are going to talk a little bit about Patreon content and what we have going on here. We did have a picture slideshow this last month here in November, and uh, that was going over the Battle of uh, Perryville, the battlefield there. So if you want to see what the modern-day battlefield looks like, had uh, some commentary on some pictures uh, from a recent trip I took out there. So that is posted. And we also have coming up here as we're turning the corner into the the next month here we have uh, a movie review we're going to do uh, abraham lincoln vampire hunter and uh you know this was a again this was kind of a silly one and um we're going to see what exactly if anything we can get in terms of uh, historical accuracy from from such a movie but figured uh, as we get into the holidays here of course uh it would be a nice uh nice little thing uh to uh to roll out so uh if either of that sounds like it would interest you or any uh, memoir reviews that we've done. There is a link to the Patreon in the show description and uh, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. They are greatly appreciated. So speaking of Grant, he would pause for a moment after his victory at Missionary Ridge. Confederates believed the Federals would soon be pouring in behind them. But like Rosecrans, when he took the city, Grant was likely shocked at just how well things went. Rather than plunge wildly, he would develop a plan to pursue his beaten foe. Sherman and Hooker would move on Bragg while Granger would begin to move toward Knoxville. We will get to what's going on in Knoxville at the back half of the episode, so let's see the chase of Bragg. Grant would send out Hooker, still with the attached division at Osterhaus, to get at the retreating Confederates. While they had already lost a large amount of supply and baggage, the prize would be only additions to this haul, something that might cripple the army permanently. Hooker would have a delayed start, though, eventually catching up with Claiborne at Ringgold Gap on the 27th. The Irish general had utilized a ridgeline known as White Oak Ridge and placed his men well just as he had done during the defense of Tunnel Hill. Two brigades, one under Polk and the other under Mark Lowry, would post on the reverse slope, ready to respond to any potential breakthroughs. In addition, the terrain was heavily wooded, even allowing for Claiborne's two artillery pieces to be masked from the oncoming Federals. Osterhaus and then Gary would both suffer at the hands of the stubborn defense. Osterhaus's men would suffer in the gap itself and try to gain a house before the pass that would be ideal for sharpshooters. 
Gary would try to flank the outnumbered division from their defenses, but well-placed troops would again save the day. Heavy losses would be suffered by the 7th Ohio from Candy's Brigade, this regiment known as the Rooster Regiment, for their unusual pre-battle ritual. This would actually include their officer uh, clucking like a rooster, and uh, that would get them fired up. And it, it is always interesting to me when I hear that, and I think about like you know pre-game speeches and whatnot from, from say, football, and then uh, you have this guy uh, acting like a rooster, and that apparently got everybody fired up. So uh, is an interesting image to, to picture. For an entire morning, Claiborne, with only some 5,000 men, would bottle up 16,000. At around noon, he would hear from Bragg that the supply trains were successfully secured, and so he could break off the engagement. The rebels would be allowed to retreat, burning a railroad bridge in the process, which added to the dissuading of any of a further pursuit. Grant, as we have mentioned, is still really more interested in Knoxville and protecting Burnside, so he will shift focus to that. Casualties were lopsided in favor of the Confederates, Claiborne's division only suffering some 20 killed and over 100 wounded. Federal losses were around 500 in total. Claiborne does save the Army of Tennessee from probably being annihilated or otherwise severely disabled. We, of course, know this is sort of a, a delaying measure, shall we say, when it, by the time Hood takes over and, and he moves back into Tennessee, the Army is is kind of a shadow of what it used to be, right? It's uh, definitely not the same. So he's sort of delaying the inevitable, of course, but uh, Claiborne does do well in terms of making sure the Confederates can mount a defense of Atlanta. Hooker will get criticism, still going on to command, but eventually having his second chance run out. It's probably a lot to do with Claiborne turning in another good performance as he had against Sherman the day before. But Hooker is also unlucky because he happens to face the most coordinated of the Confederate divisions. Ringgold Gap is significant, though, because it will mark the end of the Chattanooga campaign. Let's briefly talk about the significance of Chattanooga. It's my opinion, and I don't think I'm speaking too crazy here, that Chattanooga is over when Bragg decides to put the city under siege. We usually get the narrative that the city was being starved, and while there were supply issues, like I've mentioned before, it really does not seem to be a siege in terms of a proper one. Wheeler does get into the rear of the Federals, but he really doesn't do a whole lot, and there's always an available supply route, however difficult it was coming into the city. But the savior narrative is advantageous to Grant, who, as we said last week, might not have been really all that necessary. If you remember, of course, there were those who expound that perhaps Grant was not necessary to break the siege, and it probably would have been broken anyway, right? Rosecrans might have been able to do essentially the same thing that Grant does and George Thomas do, and then we have a very different narrative, but of course, having a, a starving city and, and Grant having been the successful general from a little bit further into the West coming in to save them, uh, that definitely goes more toward his shining star for sure. We will get to Bragg in a moment, but really it's the pinnacle of his problems as army commander. He doesn't really have a plan other than just sit there, and he sends Longstreet away because Longstreet, like many other officers, does not like him. Could he have kept Longstreet and been more productive? 
if we look at it now, it really could have been one of the options on the table. But the dysfunction on the side of the Confederates is there for sure. It starts with Brown's Ferry and then continues all the way to Missionary Ridge. We should point out too that in Brown's Ferry and Wahatchee, it's not like Longstreet turns in a very good performance. So even if he had stayed, is he going to be all that effective? That's a question mark that we can put on the what-if scenario here we've crafted. Lapses in good judgment of command and lack of cohesion are an issue. Now, this could have been a problem brought on by a shuffling of officers and men to better suit Bragg, but again, we will get to him shortly. I think things could have been salvaged with a withdrawal, especially after the Cracker Line is opened. On the part of the Union, I think there are certain areas where they get lucky. Missionary Ridge should not be an assaultable position. Even if you go there today, you see just how formidable it is. The assault, while a good story, is also unorganized. Sherman does not perform well, and neither does Hooker. In a way, it's like a basketball team who's shooting terribly from the field, but you look up at the scoreboard, and somehow, they're still winning. It should not have been such a near-run thing, especially with a miracle advantage. Was Grant a great general, or was he just lucky? I think it's admirable when you learn from experiences, and this was a learning opportunity for Grant. He makes the wrong call a couple of times, but he's able to adapt on the fly. We see many examples of this, including Orchard Knob, where it was supposed to be just a reconnaissance in force, and the assault goes so well that he's able to actually carry the position, and obviously he needs to adapt to that. Bragg cannot. In fact, he doesn't adapt to anything, including seemingly a plan to begin with. We always talk about how this is the beginning of the end, or this is where the end of the Confederacy lies. Well, I do not think we should be so dramatic, it is apparent that there is going to be essentially nothing going for the Confederacy in this theater moving forward. They will either be on the defensive, or when they go back on the offensive in 1864, it's going to be with less oomph than maybe 1862 or 1863. However you cut it, after Chattanooga, the war would be officially decided in the East. The doorway to the Confederate interior was open, and now the Union armies could exploit it. This is why at least I sort of get why Bragg decides to stay on Missionary Ridge. While not conducting an active siege, he is bottling up a potential invasion, and if Longstreet was able to make significant headway, and could continue to do so, then potentially that route into the Confederate interior would be saved. But as we see, Bragg doesn't really come up with all that great of a plan, he doesn't have as great of a defense, his officers are going to fail him, including Longstreet, it should be said. Longstreet doesn't do a very good job, spoiler alert, when he has his independent command, so there's a lot of factors that are going against this decision. One of the main fallouts of Chattanooga, though, is going to be Bragg's resignation. Now, he had tried to resign before, but on November 30th, it's actually going to be accepted by Davis. Bragg was reportedly surprised that Davis accepted immediately, but honestly, he really should not have been. We also really aren't going to be rid of Bragg because he will be serving as an advisor to the president and actually briefly get back into the field as the war is almost over. But of course, this means we need to have a conclusion on his tenure as commander of the Army of Mississippi turned into the Army of Tennessee. 
Essentially, he is going to be the most recognizable commander for the Confederates in the West. There's always a joke that Bragg does a lot to help win the war for the Union. While I do not necessarily think that's true, he really is not the right guy to be essentially the secondary battlefield commander for the rebels, and it's not because of his ideas, sort of. He was a good organizer and does realize the need for discipline in the army. Sam Watkins mentions his heavy-handed tactics, but it is interesting he does not seem to care too much about the lack of discipline in the cavalry, and this is probably also because Joe Wheeler was an ally in a sea of many internal enemies. As far as battlefield decisions, he is sort of a one-trick pony, although he does have some good ideas. All of his attacks are essentially an echelon, but at least he does try to take the initiative. There are certainly other battlefield commanders who are not as interested in maybe taking the battle to the enemy, so there is that. At Stones River, it almost works, especially if his attack had been better supported. But on the flip side, he's accused of not really having too much of a plan during the Heartland campaign, and it certainly seems to be the way for Chattanooga as well. Chickamauga could have been a greater victory, or at least less costly, but also could have been a defeat as well. We see through that battle that he's not really in a position to be on the field, so to speak. He doesn't really do a good job of taking control of any of the action, right? He's kind of leaving it up to his subordinates, and you don't really hear a whole lot of, well, Bragg makes this decision. It's kind of all up to everyone else, so... Chickamauga could have been more controlled. It could have been maybe different, right, than it was. And obviously, you know, it's it's one of those battles that the morale does not change for the Confederates because they suffered so many casualties. So it's not quite like Fredericksburg where the morale kind of shifts. Uh, and part of that is because, uh, at least I believe, that there was not really a good cohesion amongst the upper echelon of the command of the army. That will get us into the meat of Bragg, which is that he does a terrible job managing his general officers. Now, is it his fault that the Army of Tennessee is going to get the cast-offs from the Eastern Theater? No, but he does not do anything with them, or at least try to get the best out of them. He will rub a lot of them the wrong way. Yeah, you do not necessarily have to like your boss, but you do need to work with them and in this case, not being able to manage them properly is going to lead to errors on the battlefield. Whether he suffers from outright insubordination or not, this is going to be Bragg's main problem. Now, trying to blame problems on your employees is not going to win hearts and minds. Bragg suffers from that issue, and then also suffers from returning to the most illogical way to deal with it. He tries to ask everyone, essentially, whether they think he should be fired or not. This is not a very good way to handle conflict resolution. It's also probably not going to be a good vote of confidence on behalf of those who are under you when you're asking them if they think that he should be removed. Obviously, that means you're not particularly confident either. So, And we do, we do forget sometimes that these are people. However, obviously, probably not the right move. Another way in which he tries to handle this conflict is that he does try to reorganize and doesn't have any regard to unit cohesion, which is going to be really one of the only p 
potential advantages you could have when you have a foe who's outnumbering you, right? We see it in the Army of Northern Virginia. There is a lot of unit cohesion, especially amongst veteran soldiers, and that goes a long way on the battlefield. This, I think, is the biggest flaw against the North Carolinian, but at the end of the day, we need to remind ourselves that, again, these are people, and it may have seemed like a good idea at the time. Overall, I think there's a lot of missed opportunity, and Bragg was just the wrong guy to have in this position in certain situations, but of course, I would be happy to hear your own conclusions. So during the Chattanooga campaign, Grant is going to place a lot of emphasis on trying to go and lift the siege of Burnside in Knoxville. It's almost obsessive and does spur his rapid actions in the close of November. We talked about how Longstreet had advanced to the outskirts of the city and was prepared to get into a siege proper in a previous episode. We will pick things back up there. But first, that while I feel we have some good segments on the makeup of the armies, we really have neglected some introductions recently. This is partly because we have now fought the two largest battles of the war, and there are a lot of new faces. We really haven't given a whole lot of attention to Bernstein's army in general. On the Confederate side, we really should have a good idea of the personnel. Not a whole lot has changed since Chickamauga, but there are some changes I will run down briefly. In McClaws's division, Wofford's brigade is commanded by Salon Ruff. Ruff had been a longtime subordinate of Wofford, serving at the Georgia Military Institute before the war and fighting in notable eastern battles, including Antietam and Gettysburg. Besides Kershaw and Humphreys, he has an additional brigade under Good Bryan. Bryan was a planner and had briefly attended the military academy before the war. During this campaign, he will serve in the place of the deceased Sims. Hood's division, of course, is under Jenkins, with Bratton in command of Jenkins' brigade, the same officer from Wahatchee. Robertson, Law, and Anderson command more brigades with Wheeler's cavalry in support. For the Union Army, the 9th Corps is commanded by Robert B. Potter, his first division under the accomplished dancer Edward Ferraro. Ferraro has brigades under David Morrison, Benjamin Christ, and William Humphrey. Morrison was a Scot and former member of the Black Watch, serving in the 79th New York earlier in the war. You, of course, remember the 79th New York. They had actually mutinied at one point. He will go on to continue as a brass manufacturer after the war. Chris was a Pennsylvania native and coal merchant before the war. He has been in our story prior, taking command for Stevens at Chantilly and serving in the 9th Corps in the campaign since. William Humphrey was a school teacher who served with Michigan regiments before the war. He will continue to serve with the 9th Corps, becoming a manufacturer and newspaper editor at its conclusion. The second division is under John Hartramp, with brigades under Joshua Siegfried and Edwin Shaw. Hartranf was a Medal of Honor recipient from First Bull Run. He will continue to serve, eventually becoming in charge of the Old Capitol Jail, reading the death warrant for the imprisoned Lincoln assassination conspirators. After the war, he will go on to become governor of Pennsylvania. Siegfried had been the commander of the 48th Pennsylvania and will go on to command the U.S. colored troops at the crater in 1864. 
Shaw was a newspaper man and Pennsylvania native who had risen to command the 51st Pennsylvania, who you should remember from Burnside's Bridge. He will be killed in an attack at Cold Harbor. Malin Manson commands the 23rd Corps, us having met Manson before the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky. Julius White commands his 2nd Division, with Milo Haskell, his 3rd. Julius White was an insurance agent before the war, and was a major political player in the Wisconsin State Legislature as a Whig. He has commanded troops since Pea Ridge, and after the war, will serve as a U.S. Ambassador to Argentina. Haskell, if you remember, has served during the Perryville Campaign and Stones River Campaign. Marshal Chapin commands White's 2nd Brigade. Haskell has John Riley and Daniel Cameron commanding brigades. John Foster commands a division of cavalry, us having already met Shackelford and Sanders' replacement Wolford during the Morgan Raid into Ohio. Because of the spread-out nature of Burnside's command, the Union troops in the Knoxville defenses were around the same in number as Longstreet. This will be why Longstreet will attempt to get more troops from Bragg by the way. In addition, they had spent some time digging in, and Knoxville has hills that could be used to create quite a formidable position. With this strong position, there could also be brought to bear a decided artillery advantage, even with the southern guns being in the capable hands of E. Porter Alexander. Defenses on the north side of the Tennessee River would wrap around the city, and College Hill creating a position to protect the western approach manned by Ferrara's veterans. This would include the newly dubbed Fort Sanders, named as such for the fallen federal officer. Summit Hill, sitting to the north across the East Tennessee and Georgia Railroad, with Temperance, Maybreeze, and Flint Hill all to the east. Each of these positions would contain fortifications so as to make attackers' life difficult. In fact, Summit Hill was a particularly strong position. It would not hurt that the Confederates were not quite so prepared to conduct a siege, already undersupplied as it was, and at least for the time being, not reinforced. Some would resort to stealing the shoes of captured Union soldiers and also try to make cowhide moccasins. Now much has been made of the supply situation in the ranks of the Union Army, and as we will see when the siege is lifted, but there are certainly some constraints on the part of the Federal forces. Early in the campaign, the beef cattle had been brought into the city by Burnside in anticipation of further movements, so there was that. Also because the Confederates lacked the right number to conduct a true siege, there were ways to get supplies in, especially to the south, albeit probably not getting as much supply as you probably need. While there was a strain on the northerners, Burnside would have regimental bands play in order to maintain morale. Early in the action, the Federal troops would burn or otherwise destroy most outer buildings to deny rebel sharpshooters. In fact, they would be liberal with taking of supplies from these houses and inside the city, even barricading the streets in certain places. Confederates on November 19th would lob some shells into the city, making the official beginning. In the early stages, it would be a regular siege action, with some sniping and skirmishing on both sides. Confederates especially were active in trying to make the lives of their enemy uncomfortable. 
the 2nd Michigan would be launched in an ill-advised attempt to clear their enemy skirmishers on November 24th, resulting in a large amount of casualties. In the meantime, Moyer was dispatched to deal with the town of Kingston, which is a little south and west of Knoxville. He was under the impression the Union garrison was less than what it was, and therefore was unprepared when the Union command gave a much stiffer resistance, repulsing the rebel attacks. Wheeler would soon be recalled to Chattanooga, the cavalry remaining with Longstreet, under the command of William T. Martin. You remember, of course, that Longstreet was probably more familiar with Martin, Martin having served with the Army of Northern Virginia. We should also talk a little bit about how Burnside's troops are pretty well spread out. Now, on paper, he's going to have probably more men than Longstreet, but we mentioned that during the siege, at least in Knoxville itself, he has around the same amount of men, and there is some scrambling to try to get some loyal East Tennessee militia uh, into the army so that he can kind of bolster his forces. Uh, and you might be kind of saying, you know, why is that? Well, we've talked a lot about how in terms of an occupying army coming into a position, especially one that had a lot of emphasis on it, like East Tennessee, there's going to be a need for a lot of troops to break off and garrison in certain areas, right? So obviously that's going to mean that Burnside's not going to have quite as many men as maybe he does on paper to deal with because you have to have protect certain areas, certain supply lines. So that is why we have a number that is fairly close to what Longstreet brings to the field. So Longstreet will start to really show exactly why maybe he was not going to be geared for independent command. He would have a tough time deciding where to roll out an assault. It did not help that Bragg was expecting a successful attack, especially because he sent Bushrod Johnson as reinforcement. And before Grant gets his house in order, he wants that to be launched and Knoxville to be taken. Obviously, that's part of the plan, right? Knoxville falls. Grant's not going to be able to attack him at Missionary Ridge. He's going to have to pull back. Artillery and infantry were moved to the south side of the river to be placed in a spot where the artillery could hit Fort Sanders in a crossfire, although it was at a great distance. Skirmishing occurred between the Union forces on that side of the river, with blue-clad infantry getting the better of the gray-clad men. But then Longstreet would second-guess his decision to attack Fort Sanders, which had been improved by Union engineers. It did have a flaw in its position that made it vulnerable, but an improvement would make things harder. Extra telegraph wire was also used as a kind of pseudo-barbed wire to make things difficult for any attackers. McClaws had been gearing up for an assault there, but with a shift back to Mabry Hill, that was then called off, and we have a good amount of indecision here. Guns that had been moved across the river were recalled, but then with a change of plans, told to reoccupy their former position. Part of the problem was that Longstreet had misjudged the depth of the protective ditch before the fort. McClaws, though, would still assemble men for an attack on the 28th, skirming with the federal troops. Longstreet is going to put some blame on McClaws, and to be fair, their relationship had started to sour at Gettysburg, and he's going to blame him here at Knoxville for the deployment of his attacking columns away from the new skirmish lines. McClaws, it should also be said, was not in favor of the attack as news of Bragg's defeat had arrived. So if you think about that, like, there still is some room for maybe the Confederates to salvage the situation if Knoxville does fall, you know, Bragg can reform, but if Bragg has been smashed and he does get pretty well whipped by Grant, there's a lot of casualties, a lot of supplies that are gone. 
then there's really no need to launch this attack. They should just go ahead and regroup, and that's not going to be what they do, as we're going to see. Regardless, November 29th would be the date. Unfortunately for the Rebels, it would rain the night before their planned attack. It's going to make the conditions of the ground you know, particularly muddy, so it's not going to be as conducive to an assault. McClaws would have the brigades form up in column early in the morning. Humphreys would contribute Mississippi regiments, as well as Wofford's brigade commanded by Ruff and Good Bryan. Jenkins was supposed to support attack, as would the reinforcements that had arrived from Bushrod Johnson's division. Preceding the attack was a bombardment. This included the artillery position on the south side of the river, but due to the long range, these shots were mostly ineffective. What was effective were the Union earthworks and their wire entanglements they had made. Confederate attacks would stall at the wires and then again at the Abatee beyond. Once in range, the Union veterans inside Fort Sanders would give a murderous fire. Double canister would be combined with small arms and shells being thrown into the ditch before the parapet pit used as if they were grenades. This combination would prove most effective. Inside the fort was the 79th New York and the 29th Massachusetts, who you remember from several battles, including James Island or Secessionville. They would cry to remember that battle where they suffered in an ill-advised assault during this attack. Some hand-to-hand -hand fighting did happen as the Confederates were able to plant flags on the defenses, but their success was short-lived. Most of the Confederates were trapped in the ditch that had been supposed was not quite as large as an obstacle as it was. Jenkins had not supported the attacks properly, meaning McClaws suffered at the determined defenses, 813 casualties compared to only 50 from the defenders, making it also an extremely lopsided affair. Longstreet called off the attacks a little early, seeing the lack of success from the attacking brigades, but also failed to do a proper recon, despite having flip-flopped on a plan of action. After a truce to collect the dead, Longstreet would receive word officially that Bragg had been defeated and moved to Dalton, Georgia. If he could rejoin him, he should do so, otherwise making his way back to Virginia would be the name of the game. Since Ransom's brigade of Jones's Southwest Virginia Department was going to join Longstreet's command, he could opt to make his way in that direction of the supporting troops. We will get into the conclusion of the Knoxville campaign and additional action in East Tennessee over the next two weeks, but effectively the siege would be over after the failed attack on the 29th. So we're going to go ahead and pause right there. This week we had action at Ringgold Gap, Claiborne again turning in a good performance and saving the army. Bragg has his recent resignation attempt accepted, and so we say goodbye. Additionally, we had the Siege of Knoxville, which concluded with a failed attack by the Confederates. Next week, we conclude the immediate siege and have a kind of odds and ends episode. I want to mention the Knights of the Golden Circle, as well as reaccount the escape from prison hatched by John Hunt Morgan. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, 
and have a great week.